Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Inside Briefing, a podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. There have been reports, lots of them, that the Home Secretary has fallen out with the Permanent Secretary at the Home Office. Stories, too, that the Prime Minister wants to fire two other Permanent Secretaries as well. And allegations of bullying, again involving the Home Secretary, strenuously denied. And a growing backlash against the government's treatment of its special advisers. So is something rotten in the state of Johnson? Or is this just signs of a new administration in a hurry to get things done? This week, we're exploring the relationships at the heart of government. We'll take a look at how top officials work with their Secretary of State, what makes it work, what happens when it all goes wrong, what does it say about the wider relationship between the civil service and the elected politicians who lead those officials. And what about special advisers? These politically appointed ministerial aides can have enormous influence, except over whether they hang on to their own job. Should there be even more of them? We've got a terrific panel to discuss all this. Kath Haddon oversees our work on ministers, the constitution and lots more. Hi, Kath. Hello. You look at the hidden underbelly of government (laughs) and this week the Commons discovered actual hidden passageways. What was that all about? Yes. I don't know if they're doing tours or anything, because if so, I want to go. Uh, It was an old passageway that dates from the 17th century that was then blocked up in the 19th century, found again in the 1950s and then lost. But they've discovered a keyhole in a panel and managed to break their way into this uh, mysterious chamber. You haven't been down it yet? No, I don't. Like I said, I don't think they're doing tours, but if they are, I will be first on the list. We were wondering whether there was some pastiche of Parasite, the hit Korean <laughs> film. <laughs> Thanks, or Gamsamnida, as they say in Korea. And I gather we've picked up lots of South Korean listeners, so everyone, mm-hmm. welcome to you. Welcome back to Tim Durrant, IFG Associate Director, alumnus of the Treasury. Tim, you were researching government departments in the 17th century the other day. Why? So uh, they haven't found any remnants of them, but uh, I was looking at the history of different government departments. You know, departments change names, they change roles. And um, I I was aware that there was the Foreign Office and the Home Office were kind of initial departments. But before that, there was the Southern Department and the Northern Department. So I was looking into what they were in charge of. And the thing I asked you was, why? (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Why not? We're we're interested in (laughs) how it all goes. (laughs) Um, I might ask you that again afterwards. (laughs) I'm also delighted to be joined in the studio by someone who's worked at what I guess we shouldn't these days call the coalface of government. John McTurnan, former political secretary to Tony Blair, now a strategist, consultant and advisor for BCW Communications. John, welcome. It's great to be here. We're going to take a longer look at the Labour leadership contest in a future episode. It's not as if they seem to be in any rush to get to the finishing line of that. But do you think the new leadership is going to bring all kinds of types from Labour's history uh, back in in from the cold, like even the Blair uh, era people? So Keir Starmer is going to win. Uh, He's going to win convincingly. And he's shown in even assembling his campaign team, he's reached out to the old right, uh, Labour first, and brought in people from that side of the party. And he's reached out to the smartest parts uh, of the Corbynite left by appointing Simon Fletcher, uh, who worked uh, in Corbyn's uh, office uh, when Corbyn started, but actually, most importantly, he worked with Ken Livingstone when he was Mayor of London. Uh, Simon's one of the slickest professionals uh, on the left and committed to the party. Will they bring in lots of other people? Look, everybody will want Keir to... To, to do well when he starts, uh, but he's got to choose a team, faces for his front bench that actually look like they take seriously what the electorate said to the Labour Party uh, in December. Uh, if it looks like you're dealing with your own stuff, healing your own party, no one cares. You've got to actually heal your relationship with the voters. 
And it sounds as if you think, from your point of view, he's certainly the best of the three. Uh, I think Lisa's the most interesting, but she is just too untested uh, in frontline politics. Keir is easily the best, uh, but that's because Rebecca Long-Bailey is by far the worst. Um, if Rebecca Long-Bailey got elected to be leader of the Labour Party, it would be game over for the party. It would definitely be too big to die, but too weak to ever win anything ever again. There's a prediction. And you've also been out in the States looking at the noisier, far more expensive race to be the Democrat contender. Um, A lot of people say that Bernie Sanders is the American Corbyn, is he? No, Bernie uh, is going to be the next president of the United States of America. Well, I was Um, going to ask you if he could beat Trump. So The contrast between Bernie and Corbyn is dead easy. Um, Bernie wants to make America a bit more like Sweden. That's not ignoble. Corbyn wants to make Britain into East Germany, which was ignoble. Um, So in terms of Bernie's appeal, what struck me most was people of colour, working class people, consistently making the case in Iowa for Bernie on the the core issue of healthcare. And in politics, as in elsewhere, never ignore the obvious. Healthcare is the biggest and most pressing cost for working people. That's an issue he can campaign on and win on. Can he beat Trump? Well, yes. He's basically the angry man from Brooklyn versus the angry man from Queens. So it's like a a subway series. Um, And he can be insurgent and anti-establishment. Trump is now the establishment. That's a problem for the Trump Trump thing. And Trump is trying to cut health care. So an issue where you make healthcare the issue and Trump is cutting healthcare, you're suddenly starting to get uh, a, a proper dividing line. So, yeah, I think you'll go all the way. I think you're completely right on the healthcare point. The rest, um, well, look, let, let's thrash that out in the coming months. Uh, but thank you very much indeed for that. OK, let's dive into the corridors of power and into the soap opera now being relayed, it seems, by these Sunday papers every week to people not versed in the language of the civil service, and it does love its own language. Opponent secretary might not sound like a very powerful job, but that would be wrong. They are perm sex, as the Whitehall shorthand would have it, are the top officials in each department and some of the most powerful people in government, even if their names aren't known outside Whitehall. Kath, why are they in the news right now? Well, we're hearing, as you say, a lot of stories and the latest one, mostly focusing on the Home Office and the relationship between the Permanent Secretary there, Philip Rutnam, and the Secretary of State, the Home Secretary, uh, Priti Patel. Um, and, you know, rumours of you know, bad relationship, as you said, allegations of bullying, those have been strenuously denied. In fact, they've put out a joint statement, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, they put out a joint statement sort of almost saying, you know, everything is fine, nothing to see here, all the rest of it. You don't get these stories unless there's some problem, some issue. We don't know the specifics and whether or not the kind of stories that have been put out are right, but we do know that there's issues going on. Added on top of that, we had a story at the weekend about how Number 10 wanted to get rid of some permanent secretaries. So not just uh, Philip Rutland, though he did appear to be on the on the no, list. Exactly. Another couple that were thrown in there, uh, both from the uh, Treasury and the Foreign Office. So these are, you know, quite powerful departments. Isn't that a big problems. three departments? Exactly. Um, so, again, that story could just be throwing it out there to cause a fuss. We know that, you know, the government like to do that to sort of get everyone talking about it. Um but this implies problems. And, the, and the, the damaging thing about it is that for the rest of the civil service, even, you know, who don't necessarily know what's going on, will worry that there is a bad relationship at the top well, of the organisation. Well, we had a letter, didn't we? Uh, Mark Sedwell, the Cabinet yeah. Secretary, top of them all, put out uh, a letter he wrote to all civil service staff this week saying uh, that everyone will at all times adhere to the high standards set out in the civil service, uh, special advisor and ministerial code. What, what was he trying to do that for? I mean, this was the Cabinet Secretary doing the sort of parenting equipment 
equivalent of it'll end in tears, telling both sides, can you please stop this? Um, You know that he will have had conversations with the Prime Minister about this. He would have talked to permanent secretaries about this. Um, Oftentimes, the Cabinet Secretary's role is basically peacemaker across government. This isn't the first time that a cabinet secretary's had to deal with this kind of stuff. Um, you know, what he has to do, though, is both manage the current situation and think longer term about whether or not this is sustainable. All the discussion around Don Cummings, the Prime Minister's senior advisor and number 10, um, is in a way a replay of the discussion around Alistair Campbell mm. and Jonathan Powell, who were given uh, powers, uh, uh, orders in council, so they could actually... For them as advisors to direct civil servants, I think that was a misstep in uh, in in the new Labour government at the time because advisors shouldn't direct civil servants because you shouldn't need to. Your authority should come from your political judgment and the judgment of your master or your mistress, and it shouldn't come from you being able to boss people around. We've rehearsed some of these things before, um, but um, this sense of impatience at the centre, this desire to move fast and break things. Um, is different, I think, in quality from what we've had before. And it is part of a longer-run thing, which I think you've probably discussed before, which is I think the civil service have become far too weak in the face of ministers, far too uh, unhappy to assert their judgment, their authority, to seek direction from ministers to do things. If we'd had a less compliant senior civil service in the last 10 years, would we have screwed up the probation services in the way they've been screwed up? I don't think so. So you mean that they're too anxious to get done what the minister's saying? They say yes, minister, if you like, too, more than they say, or oh, at times when they should say no, minister? Uh, they, far, well, they, they, say, they are actually silent. They don't even say yes, minister. They kind of step away from the discussion and let the ministers drive it through um, at times when they should be going, look at the way you could do this, which would not be so risky, or look at the way you could do this, which would achieve your objectives far faster and far better. My f- my f- there will always be, with a new administration, friction between the ministers coming in, the number 10 set up, the advisors being brought in, um, and uh, and the civil service, because each side has to learn each other. And I think one of the things uh, which struck me as being extraordinary is you're a special advisor, you're very senior I think I'm the only advisor in that I know of, definitely, and certainly in the Labour side, who ever had any investment in my uh, leadership development and my management training. I was sent on the civil service uh, top management programme, which I don't think anybody else as an advisor ever has had invested in them. So the civil service are reaping, be there to stay for a bit. They're reaping the whirlwind. Mm. Um, they refuse to invest in the relationships with the special advisors, refuse to treat them as senior civil servants. Um, you know, in, when I was in NeoD, I was a two-star, quite senior. Um, they refuse to invest in that, and then they get this backlash. So I think uh, there's fault. Like there is always fault on both sides, as as Kath was saying. Um, I'll come back to the special advisors in a bit. There's mm. a fascinating point you you've brought up, but Tim, I, I, you run our Ministers Reflect program. I mean, talking to lots of ministers and getting their yep. accounts of what it was like in their time. How does it fit together with the permanent secretaries? And do you hear quite a lot of tension about that relationship? Um, it depends. Some ministers are very positive about their permanent secretaries. A lot of people, you know, they're the first official they meet when they're appointed to the job. They're standing mm-hmm. outside the department, they shake their hand, they say, congratulations on your appointment, minister, welcome to Department X. Uh, and, and the relationship sort of goes from there. Um, there are people who say, so Ken Clark, who obviously was, you know, held numerous ministerial roles, said that... Um, 
the permanent secretary sort of attitude very much defined the culture of an organisation. So if the minister was kind of along, working along the same lines as the permanent secretary, they'd probably get on generally with the department. If not, then the potential for You mean friction. trying to do the same things? But they're supposed to be impartial civil I mean, servants. They are, they are impartial civil servants and they work sort of, you know, to implement the decisions of the minister. But I think it's more about kind of working styles, mm. attitudes, that kind of thing, you know, just personalities. It can, uh, I mean, it can be all sorts of different things. I've spoken to a lot of former permanent secretaries who say, you know, they, they all vary about how often they have meetings with their minister. You know, some will, will try and see Secretary of State, you know, at least once a week. Some will see them almost daily. Some feel, you know, much more removed there about managing the department. They let the sort of policy leads actually deal with the minister much more day to day. Yeah. Uh, so they all have a slightly different approach, both to managing the departments, how involved they are in the policy. Because remember, some permanent secretaries have actually come from different departments, so mm. don't necessarily have a policy background in the department they're leading. There's a, big, um, there's a big focus on language, getting the language right, listening. I remember mm. the first meeting with um, Harriet Harman, who was my secretary of state when I worked for her in working pensions, and the civil servants all called her, the permanent called her Secretary of State all the time. Mm. And she said, stop, call me Harriet, that's my name, I want to be called by my name. And the, you know, permsex in my experience, permsex seek to have bilateral relationships with the advisors too, meet with them separately from the ministers, separately from the team, separately from the Secretary of State, because there's some business that can only be done by an advisor to, to a permanent secretary, something that the department should never know about, something that the minister should never know about, something that just has to be dealt with. Um, so those kind of, the, that is also part of the mix too. The, the, the way that they shape the department around the minister is really good, uh, but they're very good and effective, the best civil service shaping around a useless minister, giving the comfort blankets they require and isolating them from any dangerous decisions. Um, one of the, the themes that comes up in, in our interviews with ministers, though, is that the permanent secretary, you know, is kind of, is often the official they might trust the most. Mm-hmm. So your point, John, about, uh, you know, officials not being willing to kind of tell a minister that their idea is bad. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Hunt told us that when he was at the Department of Health, the only civil servant who would tell him mm-hmm. that an idea he had had wouldn't work was the permanent secretary. His his private office, the kind of policy leads on the issue, just were, mm-hmm. were unwilling to be that frank with him. Whereas the permanent secretary, because they have this experience, you know, and as you say, mm-hmm. their, their role is to have that relationship of trust. They are perhaps the ones who can yeah. do that speaking truth to power in a way that more junior officials would feel and less look, willing if you, to. If you, but if you ask Ken Clark where to come up with the idea for GP fund holding from, he'll say it was on a beach in Spain when I was staying with Tristan. Um, mm. So that came from virtually nowhere, but then the department implemented it. And I think look, we, we started off this discussion with the reference to allegations of bullying. There's never allegations when there's no truth to them. Um, so if these stories are going around, something's going on. Um, and the truth is, we do know, uh, looking back at one of my failures, I think, we do know there is bullying by ministers of civil servants. Uh, and I don't believe that we at the centre took that seriously enough or used our political authority enough to actually stop that behaviour because the civil service would have done something to a an official doing the same thing to their staff. Um, and, and the political system is really, really uh, lapse in dealing with bullies. There are bullies in politics. Um, Me Too is coming to um, uh, a Westminster near us shortly, I'd have thought. Look, when it goes wrong, I'm interested in John's point about the language also, because we, we do private sessions, mm. uh, and you, Kath, and Tim do a lot of these with um, ministers or would-be ministers mm-hmm. or, or the opposition or something, and 
we try and talk to them a lot, don't we, about language and don't hold it against the civil service if they're still using the language of the, the last lot. Well, I, th- I think, it, I mean, it's a broader issue that we try to convey. Yes, obviously, during some of the professional development work we do, but also in our research of actually understanding the civil service um, and understanding why they're doing things uh, and understanding that sometimes the process is there for a reason. I mean, one of the allegations about the Home mm. Office uh, that's going on at the moment was b- civil servants being asked to break the law. Um, and this is a sort of fundamental issue. Well, that what is exactly in, are you saying the allegation was? Because Well, so we don't know what they were talking about. The, what everyone thinks it might be about is these deportation cases. Uh, there were, um, you know, criminals who had been deported back to their supposed country of origin. Uh, the courts got involved and banned some of those deportees well, taking So that the place. process had, 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 hadn't gone through. Yes. Um, so fr- the frustration at a court ruling over yeah. the court of appeal is not the same thing as as, as, as breaking the law. No, it, absolutely uh, it's not. And and But that's the key difference is what we don't know is whether or not there was then some discussion internally about whether or not you should have just deported them anyway despite the court ruling. Now, I'm not saying this is actually what happened. I'm yeah, just using this to explore I think it's the important issue. to say we really don't exactly. know that, that that's it. Yeah. Clearly, we know that the government was very frustrated at those those, those court rulings. Yeah. And there's separately a question of whether of government frustration at the whole process of judicial review, which is something that we know that they might want to talk about. But, exactly. So you can have Except different views on this. Without, review, without, which they really yeah. like. But the issue is, uh, so this week we discussed this with Jonathan Jones, who's uh, the head of the government legal service, and there's a dividing line between the advice that the lawyers in government give to the government, which is always just advice. It is saying these could be the consequences in terms of court action and so forth, but ultimately it is for ministers to decide. That is advice in the same way. But there's a difference between that and then the question of what can civil servants do and not do, and they are bound by the civil service code not to break the law. As our ministers, ministers are ministers. not allowed to break the law either. Absolutely. Well, as are so, the general public. Not breaking John, the laws of making, actual make, thing. Make, <laughs> uh, making that point. Actually, so the, goes completely the point off being, we don't know what's gone on. We don't know whether or not this is about the advice that civil servants are giving on what the legal restrictions are, and you know whether or not ministers are actually getting frustrated that they're being told you can't do this because of something will go to the courts or might go to judicial, go to judicial review. Exactly. We've had ministers complain that this is a way civil servants Precisely. Get and they get to do very stuff. frustrated with that. But there's a difference between that and then having had a court case if then civil servants are asked to do something that they can't do because it breaches the civil service code. That's the dividing line but we don't know what's gone on. And just final point on this. So supposing the government really wants a permanent secretary out the door or window, whatever, um, who wins? I mean, in the end, you can't... Ministers can't sack permanent secretaries because of personality fallout, but the cabinet secretary has to manage that process. So it's a very kind of loose way of saying that in the end, if there's a conflict between the minister and the permanent secretary, it's usually the permanent secretary that moves on to a new job. Or the smart permanent secretaries hang on and get a peerage. Hang tough and you get a peerage. Just saying. Let's turn to another key government role. Special advisors, or SPADs, as they're called in the village, They've also been in the news repeatedly recently and not in a good way. We've had the sacking of one of former Chancellor Sajid Javid's spads. 
and Javid's own resignation over Downing Street's demands to get rid of the rest of his spads. And then we had a very brief appointment of a contractor to Downing Street whose controversial views on race, eugenics, women, just for a start, saw him quit the post soon after he started. It's called Becoming the Story. Kath, what did you make of Javid's resignation speech? I, th- I mean, it was fascinating. He had a good line about, you know, advisors advise, ministers de- decide and uh, ministers decide on their advisors. Um, but actually, the thing that he was pushing the most was try- ke- he kept mentioning the national interest. And he seemed to be really strongly pushing the point that it was in the national interest for there to be some kind of creative difference between number 10 and the Treasury. I mean, you can debate that till the end of days. Uh, But also, as part of that, that meant that the Chancellor had to have their own advisers and that for number 10 advisers to be inserted into uh, the Treasury was not in the national interest. So this was uh, obviously a defence of why he felt he had to resign, but also a bit of a push against the new Chancellor who has obviously accepted those advisers. And a push against the Prime Minister's main advisor, Dominic Cummings. Absolutely. Instigating this whole whole clear out. He got them all in stitches saying that he wasn't going to discuss the comings and goings, which (laughs) Hansard correctly spelt comings to uh, Dominic Cummings' surname. Uh, John, you were a spout at one time, as you you were saying earlier. How powerful a job is it, or can it be? It's a very influential job. It's not really about power because you're attached to a minister or even a prime minister, uh, and your job... uh, is held by you as long as that person's in their post. So it is, you you fly high and you fall hard. Um, It is influential. um, And I always used to say to civil servants, I'm a civil servant just like you. The only difference is that civil servants are appointed on merit and advisors are appointed on patronage. Um, That is a key element of this. Does that make them like you more? Uh, I think being frank about the relationship is really important. I don't think being frank makes a relationship uh, better or worse, but um, being clear about understanding the boundaries is really, really important. You can have uh, a huge influence, um, but you can't make uh, hundreds of thousands of people march in the right direction by shouting at one of them. However senior they are in the hierarchy, that's not how government works. And I think one of the difficulties that the number 10 machine are going to run into quite quickly is they're going to find out that the problems in politics are not that we don't know how to solve the big challenges. We know how to solve the big challenges. We just don't know how to handle the politics, the big challenges. If the Prime Minister wants to be raise more revenue to spend and he wants to be green and turn up at COP26 in Glasgow at the end of the year, the, climate, the UN Climate Change Conference at the end of the year, and be a hero, he should raise vehicle excise duty. That's a no-brainer. The politics of it are the difficult thing and not the conception of it. And I think the that that's where the advisors in the end are. They grease the wheels, they liaise between people, they assist with the political observation and they make the thing hang together properly when it does. When they get in the way, when they become the story, normally, with us in uh, Andrew Sabisky, uh, they get binned very quickly. Uh, Dom Cummings at the moment is defying gravity by being the story and staying in place. Uh, and we have to see, to me, that's probably a strategic play by him because other things are going on that we're not looking at properly because we're looking at the soap opera of him. Um, but it is, it's, it's influence, not power, that you have in the end. Tim, how are they appointed? 
Um, they work for the uh, the minister that they work to, so the minister chooses them. Uh, officially, those appointments are signed off by number 10, by the prime minister. Uh, historically, it has been more of a direct, direct relationship between the minister and the individual special advisor, but one of the changes... So they might work before, together before... Yeah, exactly, they might know past. each other from previous mm-hmm. careers, they might, uh, you know, a lot of people might come through sort of the party route. Um, if, they've, if the minister has moved from being a backbench MP into government, they might bring a researcher with them. Uh, as a special advisor, um, but under this this current uh, administration, there's clearly a push for Number Ten to take a sort of more central overview of of the kind of SPAD network across government and have the advisors reporting in directly to Dominic Cummings as well as reporting to their minister. Does that really work? I mean, ministers would say, not just the Chancellor, the former Chancellor, but uh, look, I need people around me who really reflect back to me at the end of the week what I'm trying to do here and civil servants all very well are the impartial ones, um, the permanent ones, but um, I I really need my own team here. And the whole point is that they're my team. They're not reporting off to to number 10. Is is that really going to work? I think, idea of a central squad, I think it's, control. It's quite untested and I think it's very early days, but it kind of talks to a wider reconception of how government works. You know, it's more moving towards a presidential system where the prime minister is the one deciding things across government in general, as opposed to a cabinet government system where you have, you know, the Secretary of State for Health who is in charge of the health system and he, his or her advisors help, uh, help him or her do that job. It seems like Number 10 wants to centralise more power generally and that's the move with the SPADs is one part of that process. Some, some of it is quite sensible. I mean, for years, SPADs were quite isolated in what they do. Having a network, having them all meet regularly is a sensible idea. You know, Some having, of them might have very little experience in government Exactly, all. yeah. I mean, you know, John's already brought up the idea of professional development. Not a bad idea for them to have both an induction and then the chance to sort of help think about how to do their job more effectively. So some of that is is really useful. I, I agree, though, I think there's a tension between the minister having somebody there who is their go-to person, who helps them with their speeches, helps them with their media, that, again, it's a very trusted relationship because these people can have a big effect on your career. If they get the briefings wrong, if they're not helping support you in the right way, you as the minister are the one who's likely to be affected by that. Um some ministers certainly, you know, back in the past would have hated it. Ken Clark, we've talked about him before, you know, always could spot what he thought was a number 10 spy and would send them packing. <laughs> um, but there, you know, so whether or not the number 10 are trying to do that, are trying to insert people and have a different network. The other thing is, it's a kind of overlapping network because you've already got cabinet, you've already got civil service networks, and this is another yes, one. Yes, and it's also. It's actually not new. I used to get the mm-hmm. special advisors together every week when I was. Um, political secretary and that was to give them the line yes they can meet each other yes they can go and have lunch afterwards yes they can have a nice discussion mm. about a policy area they're, they're interested in but I will one present the polling which is why they'll come and two I will tell them what the line is on everything that they don't and it's useful for people in health to know what the line is about the economy yeah. it's useful yeah. so those things and so what would you say to Don Cummings okay look you've, you've built yourself this uh, SPAD network uh, what, what, what bit of advice would you give him to how to get it to work I'd say the, the, the in number 10 in your role um, and those advisors in their roles and those ministers in their roles, in the end, you can only do one or two things across your entire career. You look back and you go, that actually was impactful. And you have to absolutely be clear what on the span of things is the thing that you're going to do. So 
Does Don want to change the culture of the civil service? It's not an ignoble ambition. Uh, if he wants to do that, that is the one thing he should do. He should put all his effort to and all his authority to, and not get bothered with this idea. Which number ten in, in, in under Tony Blair had, which was that all spads were meant to report every lunch that they had with journalists to number ten to the press office. So Alistair knew who we were talking to. My PA resolutely never submitted any details about any lunches I ever had with any journalists. Um, I didn't tell them to. Mm. They just understood that this was just not an, an I- issue of importance in the priority of things mm. they had to do. Don't sweat the control. Yes, try and focus on the quality of the people you appoint, but get everybody to understand you only probably get one or two critical interventions that will have a lasting impact. The rest is really important. Mm. The rest of the tactics and the, and the organisation is really important. But strategically, you've only got a couple of things you can ever really, really move from one place to another. Um, and the civil service understand that and they want to work with you on this. And actually, we all know this. The thing that we like working with are, 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 are people in our leadership team who actually want to do something. In your time, were you commissioning the other special advisors to do work? Because that's one of the things that we hear about is that what Dominic Cummings sometimes does on a Friday is say, can you go off and do this in the department? Which means that then the special advisor goes back to the department and has them prepare whatever it is that goes back for, to number 10, which seems like, again, an, a very a new almost commissioning process of work getting done. Well, every minister, it works the other way, doesn't it, too? Every minister wants their idea to be adopted by the prime minister. So they fall over themselves to find ways to be in working groups involving number 10. So it's just a a reconceptualisation of that. So... The Prime Minister has, has, has only a limited uh, amount of energy to apply to new things and, uh, and, and new projects. You will want to be associated with one of those. So like, everybody must be scrabbling around to find what is the COP26, what's the climate change element of healthcare. Mm. Uh, I bet you Matt Hancock is trying, trying, trying to find out ways to get diesel out of the backup generator system uh, and some kind of green energy into all the, hosp- all the hospitals, all the DGHs across the world. Everybody tries to bend themselves to what they think are the Prime Minister's priorities. Mm. It's actually probably better for the Prime Minister's senior advisor, Dominic Cummings, to explicitly say these are our priorities yeah. than people to try and intuit them and kind of guess at them and second guess them. Because quite often we were quite surprised um, uh, about how people interpret it. I think Tony sent out a memo early on, I want a step change in our relationship with the European Union. Um, it's reasonable. Like, be constructive, get engaged, talk about the European Union. The Foreign Office sent back a note saying, uh, about six months later, saying, we can confirm we've appointed a step change officer. <laughs> <laughs> Which is missing the point massively. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Greg Clark served as a minister throughout the coalition years before rising to become business secretary under Theresa May. And he's now out of government and instead scrutinising his former colleagues as the recently elected chairman of the Science and Technology Select Committee. He spoke to Kath Haddon about moving from inside to outside the tent and what he's going to be trying to do in his new role. Greg Clark, you're the new chair of the Science and Technology Committee. What made you want to run for the chair? Well, I have long thought not least through my experiences, Secretary of State um, and the Minister for Science uh, and Universities, that this is uh, one of the most exciting fields, not just in UK politics, but actually in in the life of the world. Uh, and it's been 
rather eclipsed, in my view, by the, the dominance nationally of Brexit in our political discussions. And so many of the transformations in science and technology and research that are taking place around the world, uh, I think, need the spotlight to be shone on them. And we need to beat the drum for it and address some of the questions that they give rise to. So to have the chance to, to chair the committee that can do that is a great thrill. You've covered this area, obviously, as a minister, as you say. You know the policies well. You also know the personalities as well. Will that make you tougher as a select committee chairman? Well, I think you do develop things through experience. You you know where people are coming from and having had the experience of government, you know how things can be can be dropped and and done uh, done badly. So I think you armed with that knowledge, um I think it will help. But my my intention, and I hope those of my committee members, is not to you know, to look to to bring people down so much as to to give the benefit of experience, not just that we have, but principally of the witnesses that we, we have in front of us, to give good advice to uh, to the government and to, to those running public bodies and indeed um, private uh, institutions so they can, uh, they can take the better advantage of the opportunities. You asked a question to the health secretary this week about coronavirus and the testing facilities available in the country. If there is going to be a wider outbreak, as looks likely, do you think the country's ready? I'm not in a position to to make that assessment yet, and um, I think it behoves someone who chairs the Science and Technology Committee to be uh, to be driven by the evidence in this. And one of the things that I expect the committee will do is to take evidence from the experts to be able to form a view uh, of questions such as our preparedness, uh, but also you know, what we can do given the brilliance of UK science to. Uh, to find cures and vaccines um, that can be deployed around the world. So that is something that I uh, I think and uh, and hope that the my colleagues on the committee will want to inquire into. Um, but I think it it would be right to to wait to have that evidence. As chairman of a select committee, you'll also be a member of the liaison committee, something that's in the news at the moment because Downing Street, or there were rumours that Downing Street was considering defying convention and appointing the liaison chair themselves. What's the dangers in in them doing something like that if they were to do so? Well, I think it is important that, um, that parliament and select committees of parliament uh, have a, an independence from the executive, and I, uh, I I say that as someone that's been a minister for nearly ten years, and I've appeared before select committees on countless occasions, uh, and I've always respected and and actually appreciated the the independence that comes from that. In my view, it made for better government. Certainly, made for made me a better minister, I think, that you had a different set of views. I took great pride in uh, in adopting many of the recommendations from select committees. I never subscribed to this idea that you know, the government should regard it as a kind of, um, uh, as a sort of test of machismo to, to kind of face down select committees. If you've got people taking evidence from experts and thoughtful people thinking about things, then actually that is a good addition to policymaking. But I think it helps that there is some independence there. Do you see yourself putting you know, yourself forward for liaison committee chair? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to be chair of the, the Science and Technology uh, Select Committee. I want to play a big role uh, in the liaison committee because I think select committees 
have a real uh, importance. Um, but my committee hasn't been formed yet, so I think it's a bit, uh, bit early to be thinking about others. Greg Clark speaking to Kath Haddon. Now it's that time again. Yes, it's Speed Data with our Chief of Charts, Gavin Freeguard. Gavin, thanks for joining us. Hello, very good to be here. We've been talking about special advisors and you've got a chart for us today on just this. I do indeed. So knowing how much we love quizzes here on Speed Data, I thought we'd start with one. (laughs) I'm only joking. I thought we'd go straight to the numbers this week. Um, So as of December 2019, so just after the general election, but before the February reshuffle, there were 109 special advisors across government. Now that's the highest number there's been since at least 2010, more than under the coalition when the government deliberately brought in more special advisers. They they needed some for the Liberal Democrats. Exactly. And sort of do that political management between and across different departments. Yeah. Okay, so big number. And what about those leaving then? So it's also that was also the time when we saw more special advisers leave government. Sixty-three uh, over the course of that year. Again, that's more than the other big departure points. Mm. One after the coalition, and one when David Cameron's government gave way to Theresa May's. And they tend to go where ministers go, don't they? That's exactly right. So some special advisors stay in government, but they move post as their ministers move around. So it is also dictated by the sort of ministerial moves that we see. And I assume some of them will have been in in post for a long period of time because they may have served under, you know, the previous governments, the May or even the Cameron one. Though, you know, again, it's hard to see that that data, isn't it, about how long they've been actually around individual ones. Exactly. And we only ever get an annual release on these mm-hmm. things as well. So we're not really able to see what happens between years as well. So if anyone is listening from the Cabinet Office, we'd love some more recent publication, especially now that we've had quite a big reshuffle. And the numbers are edging up, aren't they? Is there a cap on how many they're allowed to be? No. Uh, it's, I mean, there is a long convention that most ministers only have two, uh, but actually that is sometimes broken in a few places as well. And I think we'd expect to see the number come down a bit since the the cabinet was the largest it had ever been back in December. Mm. Um, We're now down from 33 to 26. Mm. And as Kath said, they tried to move away from junior ministers having spads, but a number that were attending cabinet, such as the housing minister, did have a special advisor. And uh, remember, there was also the cost of special advisors, which is another reason. Which is one of the the things that gets controversial about Mm. them. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on all this. Gavin, thank you very much. Thank you. We've reached the end of another episode of Inside Briefing. My thanks to Kath, to Tim, to John McTurnan. Great to have you here. Before we let you go, what should we be looking for in the next week? Kath? Select committees are finally back. Uh, Next week, the House will approve members of the select committees so they will be able to get up and running. This is obviously something that the Institute for Government has been watching and waiting to happen. Uh, We will see how much good scrutiny they do. Is is this going to make any difference? Is it going to give the government instantly a hard time? Uh, Not instantly, no. And I mean, the first thing they'll need to do is start agreeing their programmes of work, witnesses that they want to get in, sort of future oral evidence sessions, that kind of stuff. The big question, though, was what will happen with the liaison committee which is the committee uh, that sort of sits above them all and scrutinises the Prime Minister because we're hearing rumours that the the government wants to get involved in uh, thinking through who that new chair is It by convention is normally selected by the select committee chairs uh, but there could be a battle ahead or there could not it could just be yet more noise coming out of government about things they might do but actually won't 
We'll have to see. Tim, what do you reckon? Uh, next week, the negotiations between the UK and the EU get started on the future relationship. So this week, we've had both sides laying out their initial uh, kind of opening positions and negotiating mandates. And uh, next week, we will find out sort of how they survive contact with each other. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of noise. There's going to be a lot of sort of uh, heat and not much light, I would imagine. Um, we've already seen reports about uh, the Prime Minister saying he's going to walk away from negotiations if there's not clear progress by the summer. Um, I think, yeah, let's wait and see how that happens. All, all the early positioning. Exactly. John? Look, I think you probably should be looking at the beauty parade of Labour backbenchers who are going to start performing uh, in front of the man they think is going to be the new leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. And they'll be, just as Keir Starmer himself is starting to say, oh, I'd let Alistair Campbell back into the Labour Party. He's positioning himself as the future leader. You see people going, well, I wouldn't mind being in the shadow cabinet. I wouldn't mind this position. I know a lot about cemeteries. I know a lot about tramways. Could I be the um, shadow That's going to be very funny. The cemeteries yeah. and tramways. So lots of performances are going to be uh, polished. Thanks, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can stream us on Spotify too. And do leave us a review. No anonymous negative briefings here, please. Thanks, everyone. Check out our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for all our work, and see you next week for the latest Inside Briefing. <laughs>